Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Chris Ramsey. Chris is a genetic scientist. His training is in human genetics, and he specialized in complex genetic disorders, such as MS, as well as other autoimmune disorders. I'm really excited to, to talk to you, Chris. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Roman, for having me. My pleasure. Uh, you know, when we talk about genetics and science, to me, like uh, somebody saying, you got to learn Chinese and Japanese all in one week. Go. <laughs> you know, it sounds so complex to me. Uh, perhaps give us a little background um, about your, uh, your training, your work that you've done in uh, genetic science. Sure. Yeah. Genetics is actually uh, simple. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not really complex when you think about it. The, the work to work with it is complex, but itself is just uh, a set of uh, instructions in our genome that uh, environmentally help it dictate how we should behave and uh, physiologically what needs to go on. So that's really, it's, it's just a set of instructions, just like a code you would write in, in computer, where that's just on a, uh, genetically is on more of a physical form mm -hmm. my um uh, my you know i graduated from ucsd in different sciences and i was doing research at the time um, i moved to ucla to get my doctorate in human genetics back in to 1998 1996 1998 era and uh, i really just uh it was all world like you said of of um of interesting things that was happening at the time, uh, you know, epigenetic was just becoming um, understandable and it's, it's applications and its implications uh, was, was being, being understood. So it was really a good time uh, to really be in genetics. There's so much going on. So I, I said, yeah, I'll, I moved from uh, biochemistry to genetics, which is a uh, quite a shift. And then following that, um, I did my uh, postdoctorate fellowship at Scripps Research at San Diego in uh, the Department of Immunology. So really got uh, five years of training in, in immunology as well. That's great. And do you, you know, when I first heard about genetics, right, it seemed to me like it was just, that's it, there's just genetics. And then recently, as we were doing research on ADHD, we came across epigenetics and it was kind of this like almost this counter theory, right? So it's almost like, oh wait, we've believed that certain things are genetic and now there's epigenetics telling us, uh, and when I say genetic, I just mean uh, predetermined. There's nothing you can do, right? And now epigenetics, from what I understand, and I want to get into that with you, is Oh, there is something we can do. It's actually just like a blueprint. It's not predetermined. Now, what can actually influence it? What can, uh, you know, activate a gene or, or not, right? right. Uh, that's me. That's 
to me seemed like a big aha moment of like, wait a minute. So we've been victims all this time. And now actually someone's telling us you're not a victim. You can actually, you know, be empowered in the face of, of your DNA. Is that true in a nutshell? Yes. Um, so, you know, we learn in bits, right? You know, uh, we don't have all the information at once. Technology improves. So is uh, medical intervention and science. It's always in bits. And initially when we discovered genes, we were like, oh gosh, this is awesome. You know, we can control it. Uh, we didn't know how, but we knew that there's this uh, discrete set of information that perhaps uh, will make it easy for us to understand some of these disorders. Well, this is a long time ago. And then as we learned uh, from very uh, simplistic organisms that, oh, genes turn on and turn off. So therefore this particular protein can express certain functions. And if you have it, you're good. If you don't have it, you're bad or so forth. In particular, um, what you're zooming in on. Then we started learning more and more and zoomed out and zoomed out and zoomed out and learned that, oh, wow, well, there's other set of regulatory regions that uh, dictate to the genes when, how much, and how to turn it on, right? So like, okay, so there is reg regulations. It's not just you have a set of genes and they're on, and if you have a mutation, they're off. It's like something is governing this. Right. So good to know what is. And then we started learning systems, you know, um, and uh, years later, here we are with just so much information and still so much we don't know. Back in 1996, uh, when uh, we first started learning how to clone uh, human cells, you know, the dolly, the sheep, if you remember, was was the first sort of discovery that we can clone mammals, you know. And Dolly the sheep died early and with several complications. And it was puzzling everybody in the field that what just happened? Well, at the same time, epigenetic was being discovered, you know, what, what's happening. And I'll explain epigenetic in, in, a, in a quick format. So epigenetic at the same time became a new field understanding that there were certain molecules on top of the DNA which we didn't know why they were there, but we, we kind of knew they were there. We ignored them. We, we thought that's just part of, you know, biology. And these molecules are these tiny little uh, methyl groups and ethyl groups that sort of forms um, these uh, imprints, we call them, you know, we call them the, uh, on, on the genomic DNA, DNA. So you could have a stripped DNA, and then when you put it into the body, it gets imprinted. The, the, uh, when, Dol when Discovery went after figuring out investigation of what happened to Dolly it, 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 at the time, they started testing uh, the theory that perhaps because they took an adult mammary cell and used that DNA to put it into a, uh, to an egg and insert that in a surrogate sheep uh, mother, Maybe developmentally, that DNA is different. Now, it's hard to think that DNA is DNA. You got these strands. You know, how could that be different? It's, it's fixed. It doesn't change over time. Well, they, they learned that the patterns of those methyl, ethyl, we call them methylation, ethylation groups are different. And then they started investigating and they learned that, oh, through different developmental stages, that cell goes through a series of methyl ethyl 
uh, uh, we call them deethylation, demethylation, and ethylation. So these are they're these proteins and molecules and enzymes that are constantly at work changing those those patterns. Well, it turned out that as those patterns changed, the location of the DNA itself within the nucleus changed as well. So the so this fluid molecule that is your all the chromosomes are not just stuck in one place. They are moving a bit. Some are stuck, but that doesn't mean they're fixed forever. Through development, they start moving in different parts of the nucleus. And it turned out the different parts of the nucleus are regulatory regions that are turning on those genes or allowing them to be turned on. And some parts are, you can't turn your gene on here in this house. So as this change, then it allows certain genes to be turned on, so certain genes to be turned off. That makes sense developmentally because as a single cell, you don't need a lot of genes to be turned on. You just need certain ones to get you to the next stage and so forth. So then you need to turn those off for the next stage. And you, know, you have 20,000, 15,000 genes. They're differentially expressed. They're not always on and off. They're, they're, there's this very intricate program that has been evolved through centuries and millions of years to make us survive all these environmental conditions. Well, so I just gave you a couple of simple regulatory regions, right? You've got within the DNA, the chromosomes, you have regulations, right? And now outside of that, you have regulations, right? In the egg itself, how an individual can that initial set of instructions to uh, bring that development into multi-cells and, and so forth and the gestation period, the egg itself is different from another egg. Each uh, The reason from mother to mothers are different, we're different, are because of the eggs are also have different instructions, right? So that's another regulatory region. And it goes on and on, and, and now you've got epigenetic that is dictating, and even more interesting than that, if that's not interesting enough, which is like fascinating to me, is your regulatory region outside of your body, the environment, that can pretty much dictate down, like on a, on a sort of a scale down, first on epigenetic. Well, how should methylation, ethylation be based on the cues we get from the environment? And then down to regulating the genes from the regulatory regions of the genes themselves and, and, and so forth. So, so it's really complicated. And to think that um, you know, we're fixed is absolutely uh, false. We, we can change, we can amend ourselves, we can if we change our environment, if we change the way we see things, if we, our perception changes, if, if we lower pressure on, on, on us with uh, respect to stress, you know, a lot of things, you don't need a shot or a drug, can be reversed uh, through food. I mean, we're learning a lot about diet right now that, oh my God, you don't need to go and, and, and get all these uh, um, drugs for coronary arteries, you can reverse it by just food. It's, 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 and, and it's shocking to people, but it shouldn't be shocking because what goes in dictates how they're going to behave. Now, anyway, in a nutshell, I hope that, that, that is clear enough to understand that this is not 
we were designed by evolution to be able to move with the environment and um, and change and not be fixed. So, you know, while I was studying all these complex disorders uh, that um, what we call are not monogenic disorders, a single gene doesn't cause that problem. Several genes has to, uh, in concert, make this happen. And on top of that, there's many pathways to get there. So, you know, you, coronary artery disease is not a single pathway. Otherwise, we would have discovered by now we'd be done. There's so many ways of getting there, right? Environment has the biggest impact. How you, what you eat, what you do, and exercise, and all of those things that are, that are in your control to, to, uh, to do, um, you know, makes it that we were designed to be able to change according to environment, to, to have ourselves reprogram. And we're seeing a lot of that these days, which is fascinating to geneticists uh, like myself and, and people studying in this field. So why then do you think in the case of ADHD, we still keep hearing that it's hereditary, genetic, predetermined? Um, it's not a strong voice out there, but it's part of that loud narrative. Uh, why do you think that that they haven't simply accepted epigenetics as a as a game changer? Well, the theory still stands because there's no new theories. We haven't discovered anything new. You know, I studied ADHD. I have a couple of publications uh, at the time. This is really old stuff. I mean, there's a lot more new happening. But back back then, we were we didn't have the technologies we have now, and we were studying uh, complex disorders such as bipolar, uh, ADHD, and I was involved in a couple of them uh, in ADHD. Uh, looking at what we call candidate genes, you know, just like alcoholism. Everybody thought, oh, you know, uh, it's probably that stimulation is, is due to dopamine receptors or dopamine. So they started looking at dopamine receptor genes to see if there's any mutations that are different between people who are not alcoholic and those that are alcoholic. And of course, that's that association study is not going to get you anywhere. But, you know, at the time, as I said, that's all we had. So we go after it, you explore it with the, mm -hmm. what you know, what you have, and the technologies. As, as, and we, it, these bits come to us in time. And still today, we have no idea any of these disorders. So the theory still stands that this is a genetic disorder. Of course it is. Everything is going to be a genetic disorder. But ge genetics themselves, uh, genetic is now a wider field than what it used to be, right? So we need to differentiate what genetic means to everyone. Um, for me, genetics is all of it. Environment, and the, genes act on a cue. They don't just sit there and do their own thing. They need a cue. They need instructions. They need to know when and how and uh, how much to, to make this protein, right? So all those regulatories are what uh, differentiating. So everything you can say accurately that, of course, it's, it's a genetic disorder. Or what I really, when I was interviewing all these kids who would come in and they were uh, labeled with ADHD, um, you know, what I noticed was that they, uh, there, there's a set of criteria you read, like to, to assess if a kid is borderline or, or severe or, 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 you know, just ADD versus ADHD. So there's this sort of a booklet, the questionnaire you go through to figure that out from a psychological perspective. And, and, uh, and you learn that these kids were brilliant. 
And it, you know, I was taken aback. Some of them are, you know, Harvard graduates. They're, they're really smart. They're, they can connect things faster than I could. They were just messy. They would forget their stuff. You know, they're a little hyper. But other than that, they, they were great. You know, I'm like, wow, we can really, they, they're going to do really well if they focus on what their interests are. The problem that I saw during those, those times was we were trying to put everybody into a bucket of looking like us and acting like us. But if you let these guys follow their path, their interest in an environment that they get the right cues, then they could be incredible. So that's what we were all seeing as general, like, oh yeah, I think we're going about this the wrong way. Now we're researchers and scientists, but the clinicians always love to put you in a bucket so they can have an answer for you. You know, uh, well, you got to take these drugs you gotta, and this will bring you down. This will help you calm down, those sort of things. The, 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 the clinicians behave very differently and their observations very different than a scientist, in my view. And you can have both, you know, you can have one, uh, a lot of great clinicians, MD, PhDs that I worked with, you know, they were great scientists and they could use that. Uh, those are the really good doctors. Those are the ones you want to go to because they, they've got ability to look at it from, the, from both sides. Um, and, and that was the thing that I noticed is that, oh, really a big eye opener for me not to label people or any of these. And from a geneticist point of view, I don't see anything that's, an aberration, you know, I, I see differences, you know, I, because that's all they are. We're just different. Again, going back to evolutionary um, uh, biology, evolution, its purpose is to really mix things as far as it can so we can find the one possibility or two that behaves and works better in the current environment than what we had, right? It's improvement. It's like continuous improvement. If you can think about the process flow analysis, it's a continuous improvement, but it's naturally happening through the processes in biology that's already in place. Um, so, you know, I said, all right, well then, I don't like labeling them as, as disorder ADHD. You know, I, I really backed off of all of that and said, this is where clinicians, I guess, do because they, they, they that's their work. You have to kind of... Uh, uh, categorize things, but but uh, but I think we're going about it the wrong way. And these people, kids, you have to put them in a different environment that they can thrive. And when you do, they'll be better than anyone else. In fact, some of the most incredible attention ADHD, ADD uh, folks that I've seen are brilliant MD. PhDs that have the best publications out there, but yeah, I mean, you got to manage them. They're all over the place, <laughs> but they can connect things like nobody else can. They're just a mess. You know, you just have to sort of clean up after them, but, but yeah, yeah. they're, they're, they're well-known doctors, you know? So, so it's kind of like, you know, we're all going to be different. And if the sooner we accept that, then, uh, then, you know, we can actually help these kids and, and people to be in the right environment with the right way of learning. Not, not this, I mean, our school system is a joke. It's been a joke for centuries. I mean, that's really an old model. Uh, even that's another thing which we won't get into, but you know, I'm using that as an example is that we're stuck when you say, why are these uh, uh, kids are still uh, 
called attention deficit. It's like, well, because we don't have a new way of looking at it. So the clinicians are still calling it a disorder. You, you here, take this Ritalin. <laughs> it's, it's, we don't have anything new. So we're just the theory of what their theory is still stands until. It sounds to me a little bit like there's science, there's science and then there's, you know, physicians or let's say psychiatry, psychology, right? And the psychiatrists or the psychologists are a bit acting like scientists, right? They're saying, well, we have science that says X, Y, Z. So parents don't question it, right? But from your statement, what I, what I got was you, you as a scientist back then, you saw what you were discovering uh, um, as a different framework than when you looked across the bridge to the physician or the, the, the psychologist and you saw how they needed to label kids or adults with ADHD, right? So there's uh, emerging that should be unmerged because science is, is different than psychiatry or psychology. Well, that's a really good question. And being a scientist, we publish things by the time we prove things, it's five years later, right? So, so it takes so long. And then once you publish it and you, you get it out there, you still have to battle the disbelievers, right? There's still, un, it takes another five years for others to replicate your work. And so we're about always 10 years from what we see to acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, things are a little bit faster now with technology, but you know, back then it would take, a long time to prove something. I mean, just look at uh, Nobel laureates, right? By, it, it took him a lifetime. They knew it 20 years ago, but it took him a lifetime to prove it. And everybody around the world say, yeah, it works exactly like that. <laughs> and uh, they're usually almost dead before they win the prize um, to get nominated and all that. So it's really slow process. And it's, it's the, only, the way it should be because, um, that's what science is, is that you want to prove it everywhere. It has to be reproducible and everybody has to be able to replicate it. And, and it takes time. So the clinicians are acting on what has been accepted, which could be 10 years old. Now we see different things, but until the next acceptance, general acceptance of the theory come to play, then they prescribe according to what the field, each field still feels comfortable. Hmm. And is it like, uh, are you kind of in, in perhaps this in, in the field of ADHD, this idea that it's genetic and predetermined could actually suddenly be uh, disproven in the next few years because now epigenetics will have caught up and enough studies will be out there that 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 statement might change 100 percent. the reason i'm saying 100 percent is because as i explained the environmental factors for each one of us is unique and different you can't have same exact thing for every even two people next to each other the epigenetic is different and uh, even for you know when you look at twins and think because these cues are different the way we think our perceptions are different Physiologically, we could have the same exact uh, uh, framework and, and uh, outcomes, but, uh, but again, we are complex human beings the way 
just stress alone. One can have a little bit more stress than the other. That changes all your hormones. So it changes everything from a regulatory perspective. So, so you know, we, we, it, it's very complicated. So you, we, I don't think we'll ever come to that agreement that there is a single pathway that you're going to get, uh, that this is it. We figured out how you're going to get attention deficit and there's just no way. I don't think there's, there's so many different ways from a genetic perspective, from an environmental perspective, you know, it's just, I don't think so. I, we have yet to show anything even remotely close to finding a pathway for any of these complex disorders. If you had to pick one, ha ha ha. If you had to pick one though, it sounds to me that for sure the environment, the influence of the environment externally and internally sure seems to be the big, have the biggest impact on something like ADHD or, or a disorder like that. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, again, if we follow the logic, you have to ask what acts on what, right? Well, from, from, from a top view, it's the environment. The most variable factor is the environment right? That you're in. <clears throat> There's um, multiple variables and they change constantly that acts on epigenetic. Epigenetic acts on genes. So, so, you know, yes. So you look at it that the environment has the biggest impact on, let's say, focusing on ADHD, that if you change the environment, just intuitively, I mean, anyone smart enough with the common sense can think that if you put a kid in a place where it's triggering him, you know, in a, in, a, in a way that he wasn't designed, not going to do well. Oh, yeah, that kid's having a problem at school. You know, well, yeah, you've been triggering him. Now, put him in another environment that is not triggering him, but, but is influential to his uh, way of being designed, I should say to his design. Then that kid's going to thrive and be happy and not be triggered. <clears throat> Again, any you know, it's just common sense to think about these things, and and genetic and science is logical. Now, if we look at, and I've mentioned this before, one of the biggest things that's come up for my wife and I doing this project, and you know, we 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 literally have taken our family out of not only the physical geographical environment, but also our kids out of the school environment that 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 our son was in before. We've changed nutrition. We've worked on our marriage. You know, it's, it's an ongoing uh, uh, process. And we've seen amazing results. And what we now are discovering is that, and epigenetics is a great example of that, is that if what you're saying and what science is saying and other people out there like Bruce Lipton is saying the same thing and he's been researching this since the 70s. And he's saying that epigenetics is basically getting rid of the victim mentality because if if epigenetics if that's really true right that the environment influences our, our genes or turns them on or off therefore creates a different experience for us then we can no longer be victims of this oh well my dad had it or oh well it's genetic and there's nothing i can do right the, there's nothing i can do is starting to fall away in many areas of life yeah yeah, but especially in this, right? Do you do you agree with with? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, it's all about uh, again. This is 
we were getting into a little bit of non-scientific woo-woo stuff, but belief system, right? The beliefs of when you believe that uh, you can't do anything about it, then you're going to give up. When everybody around you says, you go, oh, you've got, you know, you're, you know, you're going to be this way and you won't learn well, or you're going to be hyper or you're, well, you're like, okay, then I guess I'm going to accept it. So belief system is really strong versus a family like yourself that can uh, do the opposite and say, you can be anything you want. You don't have a bad condition. You have an amazing, unique condition, right? Think about it. The rest of us are alike. How boring is that actually to have someone that's different? I'm like, I want to be different. I don't want to be the same as everybody else. Just be 10% better. I want to be drastically different and better. Um, and that's what evolution is asking. Who is really going to take the next uh, level of change and, and make certain things? You know, there's a lot of research, lots and tons of research done on uh, 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 fitness about who, who is the best fitness. And it turns out that um, you could be really fit in one environment and then they take you and put you somewhere else and you, you know, psychologically, uh, physiologically, you may not perform as well. You know, I mean, look at just thoroughbred horses, you know, they, you have to have, you can't put them in temperatures of hundred degrees. They're not going to do well or, or vice versa or any animal or anything has an optimal environment, mm. right? It was designed that way to be an optimal. And then we take them a great, um, you know, study is in observation studies are, uh, we don't have time. There's like thousands of them is, is just taking sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia, um, why there is prevalence? Well, where is the prevalence? It's in places where malaria is as high. Well, wait a minute. Why, why should it be in, in a places where malaria high? Well, we learned that malaria larva lives in the red blood cells, the erythrocytes, but they can't survive in a sickle cell. So evolutionarily, people have sickle cell, it's selected for them because they can survive it. Now, it's got a pleiotropic effect because it could also kill them. But when you're heterozygous, meaning one gene normal, you the other set of genes you got from the other parent is sickle cell, you can survive in these environments. Mm -hmm. And it, goes, it becomes a historical fact too, which I won't get into because it's somewhat a really interesting thing to me but you have a lot of these pleiotropic effects what we call in genetics where uh you know uh in one hand it's got delirious uh deleterious uh factor to it and on one hand it has a huge advantage so let's put you in a place where you have the advantage right and that's how how how, how a lot of things work genes work now um you, you sort of touched upon it um, with saying, you know, by saying that the, the, your, your mental state, right, if you believe something. So when kids get diagnosed with ADHD, um, they're literally a label is projected onto their forehead or whatever you want to put it, that they have a, uh, and I'm quoting one of the head uh, medical, uh, chief medical advisor of Pfizer, one of the big pharma companies says, it's a brain disorder, right? Now, how would you feel if I told you <laughs> out of the blue, 
you have a brain disorder, Chris, and I was a doctor. I mean, that alone ought to genetically even cause something in child's system, no? I mean, it would destroy off there? As, yeah. a, as a child, I'm an adult, so I can go back and I have that history to know how I react. If I was a child and somebody said, hey, you're, you're, you're just, um, you're really messed up this way, or your brain, you got a disorder in your brain, you'll never learn this, it would, I would give up trying. It's really um, ineffective to label people um, because as a child, you would uh, pretty much give up on the things you want to do. You would feel that, oh, I'm not going to really do it. I can't do it. I'm physically disabled to do it. Um, so you would really um, uh, taper your potential. It, now, it's, a, it's an absolutely... Um, a wrong thing to think and to say. And you're right. Medical doctors are coming out and saying this. That, imagine. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, by giving pills, it's got its, uh, of course, pills for many different disorders are, 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 um, are keeping us alive. But then we go overboard sometimes. It's like this race to just have a drug for everything. You know, so we can all look normal, so we can all be like each other or, or, or act like the society is used to. Uh, and, and to me, it's, uh, there's many analogies, but one I can think of is like having two cars. Now you have this new technology race car that is different, you know, it's, it's really different. And we all seem to love that when a new technology race car, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just faster, really weirder looking thing, but we, we all want it. And it's puzzling to me that why don't we put this additive in this race car that's given off a little bit more exhaust and nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to touch it. Like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do anything. Reg re regulatories, you know, are, are trying to get the emissions out. Like, no, no, this is a, this is a masterpiece. And if you do that, then it's going to slow down just like the other race car and there's no advantage, right? But yet for us humans, we are so different. We think so differently that some, just because someone's different, they can excel so well in this area. We're going to give them a pill to bring you back down uh, so you can look like the rest of us. And we just took their entire evolutionary advantage away. Yeah. I do feel like that really, and especially, you know, when we look at, uh, if, we, if we say ADHD is genetic, it's almost a little bit like uh, you got a bad hand of cards, you know? Yeah. The, parents, the parents feel like, oh shit, I didn't, I didn't want this, this is now a burden, the child is the problem, and now, now our life slowed down. Now we can't have the happy life that we, that we wanted to. So. What I'm hearing really is that there is hope, right? Epigenetics is slowly infiltrating mass media or it's getting more and more uh, press that the environment is actually, uh, uh, the, we, that we can actually through our environment, uh, I don't want to say reprogram, but right, kind of reprogram. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, genes are just programs, right? All of our, each cell has a very distinct set of instructions and program. 
and you can reprogram them. And that's what we do artificially in science to just to see what happens, right? We take a few genes away, we change the regulations and see what happens to the phenotype. So that's reprogrammed. And uh, same thing with epigenetic, if uh, we can strip it away and put different set of uh, methylation, ethylation groups, that's you just reprogram the whole thing to act very differently. So yeah, all of these and the natural way versus an artificial way is the environment, how it acts on us. Imagine uh, when you have uh, uh, a, a set of kids in a control group where they are put in the right environment that they get the right stimulation for what they're tuned for, that their parents are loving and, and um, they cause no stress or very little stress, relatively speaking, for the kids. And they're encouraged every day to, to that you're, you're, the, you're, you're amazing just like anyone else. You can do whatever you want. They're, and they have deep connections. Imagine that these kids are otherwise thinking that, well, they can't develop deep connections because they're autistic or this and that. Well, imagine if you didn't give up on them and you hugged them and you really every day gave them that deeper connection and the security that we're here. We're here every day. And the parents are doing uh, you know, great and they're not creating cortisol levels um, to go up. They're, they're actually creating... Um, oxytocin levels to pop up on a daily basis as feeling so you can create uh, a long-term long effect of happiness for them. That's one group, right? You're doing everything right. The parents are not creating stress for the kid. The parents are doing well. They're doing everything they can to, to create the oxytocin levels to go up the security that the child needs, not the stress, uh, which, which is the cortisol level. And you have another environmental group where the kids are told, oh, you're screwed, you're, you know, you will never be, you will never be able to do these things properly like the rest of us do. The parents are fighting all the time. So now they're, they're they have this stress hormone kicking in. They also uh, are insecure and everybody's telling them that they're different, which really isolates them. Who do you think is going to thrive? I almost don't want to answer because it's, it's a, such a, uh, it's a given, you know, that that the first group you mentioned will, will thrive because they're loved and they're they're given positive reinforcement, right? Well, we have a now we need another control group. That's just relative. Let's say autism versus autism or ADHD versus ADHD. But take these two, and add the third control group, which is your normal non ADHD segmented kids in the same age group without any interference. So now you have a very heterogeneous population of kids that some are have good families, some are bad, some are encouraged, some are not, right? You take that and see what happens. Interesting. Right? You might see, we haven't done this experiment, not that I know of, but you might see that because you have to carry that through 30 years to see what happens. You might see these set of kids who were allowed to follow their passion, who are allowed to be who they are, to be allowed to be loved and, and, and build deep connections, and who are allowed to follow their, their excitement in life. Not, not oh, we're going to pull you here and put you these special kids groups uh, with different special needs. You know, If they were, I am betting 100% 
that they will thrive better than the other two, even yeah. from the normal kids, because they have special gifts. I like that. I like that. Yeah. When you said it, it definitely made sense because, you know, they have already these, uh, uh, what I always say, the, the, the skill of impulsivity and the skill of connecting things quicker and being more alert and taking in more information, you know, processing it faster. And if they have positive upbringing, loving, and you know, that reinforcement, how could they not be just rockets shooting yeah. through space, right? Yep. I, that's from what I've experienced, from what I've seen, from what I've studied. Uh, that's my theory and my belief. I love that. I think that's a good way to, to end this episode because you, you really uh, gave us a great insight in genetics and epigenetics. And we kind of came full circle with the environment being responsible to uh, affect those genes, right? And now we sort of just talked about if, if we can optimize the environment for a child inside of a family, if we can look at the family unit and the environment around the child as the thing to, to influence, to work on, then how can we go wrong with, with any child? Exactly. Well, thank you, Chris, for this amazing interview. I really appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, if there's anything else, I'm sure we'll do a follow-up some point, but I'm just really grateful uh, I was able to have that conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. 